1: You're about to be delighted by today's Spirit in Action guest, Larry Tai. He's been with us before, so I know and I love his depth of knowledge, his piercing thought, and his amazing ability to convey facts and ideas. Today's topic is Larry's book on our almost-president back in 1968, Bobby Kennedy. And this is not just an historical look. It's a lesson for our times, especially with our current political polarization and gridlock. The reason that those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it is that they both miss the warning signs and they don't know about the potential solutions pioneered in the past. Bobby Kennedy's transformation from commie hunter to liberal icon is a story for the ages, and one we could only wish for today. Point is, there was a path, and we need to know how it's possible and what could make it feasible in 2017. Larry Tai can tell us about the whens, wheres, whos, and hows as he joins us by phone. Larry, welcome back to Spirit in Action. Great to be back with you. As I mentioned to you just earlier today, I'm sorry that I was not able to have you back to talk about Superman, your book Superman, after I had had such a good time talking about Satchel Page with you. Now we're up to Bobby Kennedy. And I'm kind of wondering if this is a superhero trilogy Satchel Page, Superman, Bobby Kennedy. Did you have thoughts of that when you were picking out this topic?
2: I did. I also had thoughts about who could be as fun to write about as Satchel and Superman, and one of the only people that I could come up with is a guy who was one of my childhood heroes, Bobby Kennedy. But I think that in a more serious way, a lot of the issues, Satchel pages life was a lens into the whole era of Jim Crow America. Satchel was born in the deep south in the year that his home state of Alabama passed its first Jim Crow laws, and His whole life was a look at civil rights history in America, and that's what Bobby's life was as well. And Superman was a lens into America's embrace of heroes, and I think 50 years after the death of Bobby Kennedy, we're still embracing him as a role model for what progressive politics ought to look like in America. So there was an emotional as well as a practical and substantive link between those earlier books and Bobby Kennedy.
1: I'm glad you bring that up, Larry, because one of the first questions I wanted to focus on to give people an idea, we can talk about all kinds of things in history, and it's always good, I think, to learn from history, but Spirit in Action is specifically about world healing. Can you make the case upfront for why looking at the story of Bobby Kennedy will enhance world healing
2: today? Because I think Bobby Kennedy, to look at him in 2017 terms he was somebody who was on the cusp of building bridges between Donald Trump's angry white voters and Hillary Clinton's coalition of minorities and liberals. If there's any moment where we need those healing kinds of bridges built, it is today, and in trying to understand how we get to that point, I think looking back, not just nostalgically, but for very practical lessons, at what Bobby Kennedy was doing in his campaign in 1968 is really instructive.
1: Do you see on our landscape someone who could function as Bobby does? Bernie Sanders actually had cross-cultural appeal, which was kind of surprising. He's not exactly the young Catholic that Bobby Kennedy was, but do you see someone like that on our landscape?
2: Yeah. so I want to suggest three names to you, and they all happen to have a last name of Kennedy— One is Christopher Kennedy, Bobby's youngest son, who is running for governor of Illinois and I think is going to be the next governor of Illinois. He understands what it was about his father's healing and bridge-building legacy that matters, and I think he's really quite extraordinary. Another guy is named Ted Kennedy, Jr., and he is now just a state senator in Connecticut, but I think in the next five minutes he's going to announce for governor of Connecticut And if he does, I think he has a great shot at being the next governor. And he combines his Uncle Bobby's sense of sort of passion and bridge building again with his dad, Ted Kennedy, the senator, sense of how to get things done. And I think he'd be amazing. And the third one is named Joseph Kennedy III, and he's a young congressman from Massachusetts who Bobby's widow, Ethel, says is the closest thing she's ever seen To her husband, he's somebody who is a, a real quiet force in the House of Representatives today, and I think he could jump a couple of the normal steps and be somebody we're looking at on a national stage sometime in the next three years.
1: So all Kennedys, I mean, is there something, is there a thirst for going back to Camelot? Is that what this is about, or is, is it just that there's something genetic or maybe environmental about being a Kennedy that makes them special?
2: So I think America is really wary of political dynasties, as we saw in this last election with the rejection of people named Bush and Clinton— On the other hand, if we really do have a Camelot kind of family dynasty, it is the Kennedys. And the idea that they produced three extraordinary brothers in Jack and Bobby and Ted was amazing and unprecedented, um, even more than the Adams family or anybody else had done in American history. And the idea that the next generation and the generation after that are producing some amazing people is we need these people to be tested. But I think three years is a good testing ground. And I think if there's any family that can give us some sense of what American politics ought to be getting back to in terms of our best roots, it really is the Kennedys.
1: Larry, maybe we better talk about the early days of Bobby Kennedy. From my point of view, and I'm generally associated with liberal politics, but at the start, I would say that Bobby Kennedy did not look like a liberal. He was a Democrat, even though he worked for a Republican and, and as a startup in the Senate. He did not look like a liberal. He was a cold warrior, which, I don't know, maybe that was the liberal of the time. I'm 63 in another week, so maybe I don't have the, quite the right perspective. You're a little bit older than me, I think, and so maybe you can tell me, Why would Bobby Kennedy be a likely liberal icon, considering that he started out with Joseph McCarthy and chasing down communists?
2: So I'm going to be 63 in six months. My perspective from the research I did in the Bobby Kennedy book, and as important, the research I'm doing on my next book, which I just signed up for, which is a biography of Joe McCarthy, I think Bobby Kennedy was the unlikeliest liberal icon that you could have ever imagined if you knew the Bobby Kennedy of the 1950s. He started out not just working for Joe McCarthy because his father, Joe Kennedy, had told him to, but because the young Bobby Kennedy believed in what Joe McCarthy was trying to do. He believed that behind every pillar in the State Department lurked a potential communist, and that we had to root them out. And this was a very tough guy and a very conservative guy. But it's precisely because of the political transformation he made over the next 15 years from his days working as Joe McCarthy and believing in Joe McCarthy to slowly beginning to understand that Joe McCarthy and his methods were wrong and that instead of looking for communists behind every pillar, we had to look for ways of reaching out and bridging the gaps in the Cold War and the Vietnam War and his political transformation was, I think, the same transformation America was undergoing. America was very conservative in the era of Eisenhower. They elected Eisenhower and then re-elected him, and they liked that sort of very cautious approach, but it transformed dramatically from those 50s to the tumultuous 1960s, and there was nobody who reflected that change and was helped steering that change more profoundly than Bobby Kennedy.
1: Were Democrats actually the liberals in the 1950s in general? Because actually the Democrats had a long history of support for segregation and other racist attitudes. I think that a lot of it had been implemented under the Democrats. So, Certainly there's economic programs, the New Deal and so on, that were conceived to be liberal. Were Democrats the liberal across the spectrum, or is this specifically an economic term?
2: So the answer is no and Democrats in the 1950s were not especially liberal. It was the Republican Party that had always done more for civil rights issues. They were the party of Lincoln, and it wasn't until the Kennedy administration that the Democrats grabbed that issue away and started pioneering their own civil rights initiatives. On the other defining issue of the times, communism, Democrats were, as I'm seeing with Joe McCarthy, the Democrats on his famous subcommittee on investigations were often trying to outdo him in showing how tough they were in going after communists, perceived communist threats that I think were not actual threats. And the Democrats were the kinds of Democrats that Bobby Kennedy and Jack Kennedy represented in the 1950s, which were really moderate, if not conservative.
1: And what about homophobia? I was reading some of the notes and some of the opposition, I think, Roy Cohn, and others, there were it was maybe anti-Semitism going on within Democrats, I guess specifically, but also some homophobia issues as well. Was that part of their liberalism, conservatism
2: at the time? Yes. So to remind your younger listeners... Roy Cohn was Joe McCarthy's protege. He was the guy who helped Joe McCarthy in what I think will rightfully characterize as his witch hunts looking for communists. And Roy Cohn was also, although not openly, Roy Cohn was clearly gay. And I think a lot of Bobby Kennedy's problems with Roy Cohn when they were both working for Joe McCarthy was a very clear-cut homophobia that was characteristic not just of the Kennedy family but of America back then. But ironically, Roy Cohn, who was himself gay, was out there trying to root out not just communists but homosexuals in the State Department and other government positions because the feeling was that they were somehow subject to a blackmail and that they were security risks. And if you watch what he said and did in those years, you would have said that Roy Cohn was homophobic as well.
1: You already mentioned the Adams family, and that's not from the TV series, but two of our first six presidents had Adams in their name. I forget exactly what their relationship is even. I think the second and the sixth president, if I recall, were Adams. We have two Roosevelts, and they, I think, were some kind of cousins. Are there other presidents that are related? Have we had other dynasties in the American history?
2: No, and none as closely related as these three brothers. And it was just, it was extraordinary. We also have never had in the history of America, I think, a closer situation to what I would call a co-presidency than what we had with Jack and Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy was not just Jack's attorney general. He was his chief advisor on anything political. He was his chief advisor on any critical foreign policy issues, be they the Bay of Pigs or the Cuban Missile Crisis. He was somebody that Jack could turn to in a way that presidents generally can't trust, their vice presidents or their cabinet members, in terms of having total faith in any piece of advice that they give them, faith that that advice is well-intentioned politically for them, and faith that the, the advice is something substantively that's worth following. So there was nobody who was better prepared as a candidate for president than Bobby was when he was running in 1968. He had had four extraordinary years as a senator, but more importantly, he had three years as his brother's closest advisor, and he was much more prepared to be president than Jack Kennedy was when he won the office in 1960.
1: That's kind of amazing to think about, especially since Bobby, I sense, mainly worked in the shadow, I guess, of his brother. I mean, he was attorney general, and you said co-presidency. I can see how his influence was very primary, but he often gave up whatever work he was doing in order to work on his older brother, JFK, Jack, John, his candidacies. There's a good case made in the book that, in fact, his brother owes a lot of his success to his younger brother, you know, and Bobby was making such a difference in those campaigns. There's something I also noted is that Bobby seemed to have jumped jobs a lot. It's like six months at this job, six months at that job, as opposed to two, five years, whatever like that. Was there a sense in which he was just climbing the ladder very quickly, or was he unstable in some way? Was he you know, honing in on what he wanted to be when he grew up? What was that?
2: So in his early years, it was a little bit of all the things you suggested. It was partly that he wasn't sure what he wanted to do, It was partly that Joe and Jack wanted him to have a very diverse background, so he was jumping around to things. He stayed for seven and a half months with Joe McCarthy. Then he went on to a couple other jobs that were things that his dad had recommended. Then he found a more stable and one of his longest surviving jobs was with Senator McClellan from Arkansas, who had taken over the committee that McCarthy had run, and Bobby was out there chasing Jimmy Hoffa, the corrupt president of the Teamsters Union and other union improprieties. So he could afford to be taking one job after another because he was a Kennedy and didn't really need the money. He was smart enough and unsure enough about what he wanted to do that he was trying out lots of different things. And all of that, while it seemed a little bit flaky at the time, ended up making him an extraordinarily prepared attorney general and senator and even more candidate for president. And all of those experiences I think could have come back and helped the American public and helped the kind of healing issues that we were talking about earlier. He was perfectly poised to be the ultimate healer in 1968.
1: Well, the theme that you've been pushing, and I I see why from the book, And again, folks, Bobby Kennedy, the making of liberal icon, bridge building is the theme that you've been talking about today, Larry. One question I haven't asked, which might be counterintuitive. There is this, the infamous Joe McCarthy from Wisconsin, where I live. He was a Republican And yet, for some reason, Bobby Kennedy worked on his staff, was a big supporter of his and was a a friend of his until 1957 when he died. Why this friendliness? Why this connection across the aisle with someone Republican? It seems so unlikely today in the United States that you could have that kind of deep friendships where he's going to be there, they're going to be together in all of these personal life events leading up to Joe McCarthy's death. Why was it possible then? Why was it likely then? Why
2: is it not possible today, I guess, is the obverse. So it was possible then, partly because I think people looked less at political affiliation, even when you came from a family that was as staunchly democratic as the Kennedys were, what Bobby saw in Joe McCarthy was the same thing that Joe Kennedy, Bobby's dad, did. It was a tough Irishman, which they liked being tough Irishmen themselves. It was somebody who said what he believed, no matter how controversial it was, and that was something that Joe Kennedy especially loved. And I think that Bobby understood that his dad liked Joe McCarthy and that that was initially the reason that was a good reason for him to relate fondly to them. And I think that uh, Joe McCarthy used to come by and hang out with Bobby and Ethel Kennedy when they had their first daughter, toddler Kathleen. And he was so in love with this child and the Kennedys so appreciated that that there was this personal connection along with the sense of the shared goal of rooting out communists, along with the feeling that things like ethnic and religious heritage mattered more or at least as much as party affiliation. And the short answer is no. Imagining that kind of thing happening today is really difficult. Ironically, one of the last people in the Senate who was able to reach across the aisle in a way with friendship and even with political unions One of the last people to do that really successfully was Ted Kennedy. And when he died, a lot of the cooperation, the potential to bring Republicans and Democrats together to give us things like a children's health bill, that kind of stuff just dissolved. And we now have this incredible sniping that uh, makes that kind of cross-aisle cooperation something that we can't even imagine.
1: You already mentioned three of the Kennedys who are potential luminaries for the future: Christopher Kennedy, Ted Kennedy Jr., and Joseph Kennedy III. Do they have that kind of potential? Are they that kind of person? Is there st- something still in their DNA from their Irish background, or something that makes them more convivial across the aisle?
2: So, Joe Kennedy III is the one who is the best test case because he's been in Congress, you know, on more of a national stage and he's tried to make a trademark of his early career in Congress reaching across the aisle. It's difficult to do, but on a number of cases he's been able to do it. It's essential that he do it because he's in a House minority, the minority party, and unless he can reach across the aisle, the chance of ever getting anything done is inconceivable. Whether Christopher and Ted Jr. can do that, we will have to see, but I think that that it's something that, on the one hand, the Kennedy name so represents Democratic politics that it's anathema to a lot of Republicans to imagine embracing anything that Kennedy would embrace. And on the other hand, they've got these personalities that seem a little bit larger than life and that I think could be quite appealing to Republicans if the Kennedys make the effort to reach out to them.
1: I understand, Larry, that your lineage is Jewish, and I'm kind of intrigued by the idea of Bobby Kennedy and JFK, as a kind of a minority. I mean, actually, uh, the Catholics were the largest religious group, but Protestants, which includes the gamut of all kinds of Protestant religion, were numerically, when you add them all together, bigger than the Catholics. I grew up Catholic, by the way. So I remember in the 1960s when there was this kind of, I don't know, hatred is maybe too strong of a word, but this opposition, this fear of the other, the minority, and Catholics were that minority. And I do recall the first memory I have of television is actually watching the debates on television, Richard Nixon versus JFK for president in 1960. I remember the talk, that you can't have a Catholic as president because then the Pope's going to control them and all that kind of hogwash. So is there a sense in which this was truly a minority like Barack Obama coming from behind as a minority to become president? I'm speaking of JFK here, and breaking that barrier for minorities. Is that in some way
2: parallel to what happened with Barack Obama? It's directly parallel. Um, And so let's go back to the primaries in 1960 when Jack Kennedy is running for president and Bobby is his campaign manager. And in the state of West Virginia, maybe the most critical of all the primaries that happened that year, West Virginia had a relatively small Catholic population. I think it was 10%. And Jack was running there, and he understood that there was lots of anti-Catholic backlash, and he understood that there was this notion, this crazy notion, that if he were in the White House, that the Pope would be calling the shots. And he did something brilliant at Bobby's direction which was gave a speech that he would later duplicate in the general election, and it was a speech essentially making the election a test of how tolerant Americans were. He talked about his Catholicism, he talked about his independence from the Vatican, and he confronted straight up the bias against Catholics, and it worked. The Instead of being a question of whether they would vote for a Catholic in West Virginia in that primary, it became a question of how West Virginians saw themselves and were they the tolerant people that they would have liked to have seen themselves as. Jack Kennedy won that primary. He beat Hubert Humphrey, the senator from Minnesota, decisively enough that that was the end of Humphrey's campaign. And that primary where Jack Kennedy had made his Catholicism the test for voters was the primary that catapulted him to the nomination and to election. The same exact kind of a speech Barack Obama made in 2008, where he understood the underlying racial tension. He gave a speech that was almost a mimic of what Jack Kennedy had done, where he brought out front for Americans the notion of just how tolerant they were in considering voting for a black candidate. And by taking it on head-on, It turned out to be successful, and we wanted to think again in 2008 that we were a tolerant enough country that we could vote for a candidate independent of what the color of their skin was. And the good news back in the 1960s was, while his Catholicism was a major defining issue in 1960 in Kennedy's primary campaign and in the general election, eight years later when his brother Bobby was running, His being a Catholic wasn't even an issue, and we had come far enough in just those eight years that the Kennedys had transformed politics and a Catholic could run without his religion mattering.
1: And so if we look at Hillary Clinton, obviously the first woman with a pretty good shot at the presidency, she clearly touted the fact that she was a woman and that this was breaking glass ceilings to get there. It evidently didn't work for her. Is that because Americans are less tolerant than they were back in the 1960s for JFK and Bobby?
2: So this is something that I think we'll be debating for a long time. And I think it was a little bit of two things. I think it was, one, that we were less tolerant and that Donald Trump played on lots of gender issues not so subtly and I think was demeaning of Hillary in part because of her gender, but I also think it was that she wasn't as strong and compelling a candidate as either Jack Kennedy or Barack Obama. So was it Hillary's gender or was it Hillary? I think it was some combination of the two.
1: Folks, you're listening to Spirit in Action. This is a Northern Spirit Radio production. On the web, northernspiritradio.org, where you'll find all kinds of information about our guests of the last 12 years, including a link to Larry Ty. In case you don't know how to spell Tye, it's T-Y-E. So that's L-A-R-R-Y-T-Y-E.com is how you get to Larry Ty's site. He is the author of Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon. Also on our site, you're going to find a place to post comments. We do love two-way communication, You can help us make it two-way by posting a comment when you visit. There's also a donate button. That is how this full-time work is supported. It's by your donations. It's not by corporations. It's not by government. It's because you, the listener, support this work. So please click donate when you come. Even more important, though, I would say... It's so invaluable to have a wide source of information available to the American public. And unfortunately, our media concentration has grown over the years such that really maybe six corporations control 90 plus percent of our media. That makes your local community radio station more important than ever. So please start by supporting them. Your local voice is so crucial. Start by supporting your local community radio station. Again, Larry Ty is here, and Bobby Kennedy is the topic. We've just been talking about a couple presidential trains leading up to, and I as you might say dynasty. Hillary Clinton's was interrupted. And I would say, by the way, Larry, that in the primaries, I was not supportive of Hillary Clinton because I do oppose dynasties. Can you sell me on why dynasties are not such a bad idea?
2: I think dynasties aren't a bad idea if the people who are part of that dynasty are truly compelling characters. And if they, independent of what their last name is, justify being considered as a candidate for an office as high as president. I think in the case of the Kennedys, you could argue that Jack Kennedy was a compelling president and that Bobby would have been an even better one. So whatever his last name, he just was good in and of his own right. Hillary Clinton, the American public decided, like Jeb Bush, their last names weren't enough to justify electing them. I think dynasties are great if there's some shared sense of political purpose, of ethical sturdiness, of whatever. And I think the Kennedys, in lots of ways, offer that, that a lot of the things that they bring to the American political system are a sense of not just caring about and feeling a sense of responsibility that they would run for public office, but also bringing to it some sense of intelligence and background that makes them compelling candidates. This is a family, in the case of the Kennedys, that is wealthy enough Every generation has enough money that they don 't need to be subjecting themselves to the crazy American political system they 've also lost enough. You know Chris Kennedy lost his father. Joe Kennedy the Third lost his father and his uncle if they 're willing to do it, having seen how cruel the American political system can be to kennedy 's. I say let's judge them based on who they are and whether they truly are as good as their forebears were, and I hope that they are.
1: I want to revisit some more of the history that, again, leads from Bobby Kennedy, the Cold Warrior, up to Bobby Kennedy, the liberal icon. As we've already mentioned, he started working with Joseph McCarthy on his staff. He then is facing off with Jimmy Hoffa of the Teamsters Union. I'm always kind of surprised by that, the idea of a Democrat taking on a union man. Is there a sense in which the Teamsters are not really union members, or is this Uh, maybe you have more credibility in the same way that Richard Nixon going to China was possible because he was anti-communist, starting our connections with China, as Richard Nixon did. Is there a sense in which there's more credibility to a Democrat who's taking on a union man like Jimmy Hoffa?
2: Yes. There was also a... Bobby Kennedy said explicitly in public statements and in a book he wrote about that whole crusade against Jimmy Hoffa that he was he being Bobby Kennedy was on the side of the union members and that it was their leadership the corrupt leadership in Jimmy Hoffa that was selling out union members so he always saw himself as still representing the whole democratic ideal and representing the working person and Corrupt leadership was the worst thing that there was in terms of making union function effectively. It also ought to be noted that the Teamsters Union historically was a Republican-leaning union, and the Kennedys going after them made them even more so, but that Jimmy Hoffa supported strongly Richard Nixon in 1960 and was one of the few big unions in America that was a Republican union.
1: That seems like a total contradiction to me. Aren't all unions supposed to be Democrat and all non-union folks are the ones who go for Republicans? What am I missing there?
2: So, no, you're picking up on one more contradiction in our in our conversation, and I think that that was part of the strangeness of Jimmy Hoffa. And as I say, the Kennedys maybe helped convert him to being as strongly Republican as he was, and he understood that the Kennedys were likely to go after him if they were in the White House But it was also that a lot of the things that Jimmy Hoffa did, while on the one hand he started out as a truck driver himself and was very much a guy who pulled himself up by his bootstraps, he ended up relating, I think, as much to management of the companies as to his own union people. And a lot of the deals that he worked out were sweetheart kinds of deals, so he was a contradiction in lots of ways.
1: Well, and he evidently had a lot of people killed, or (laughs) at least that's the allegation.
2: That definitely is the allegation, and it's interesting in terms of dynasties. We were talking about family dynasties. Well, there's a family dynasty in terms of the Hoffas and the Teamsters, because Jimmy Hoffa's son, James Hoffa, is now the president of the Teamsters Union, and it was really interesting. He was one of the more fascinating characters I talked to for the Bobby Kennedy book. Wow.
1: Let's continue following this path from Bobby Kennedy as the Cold Warrior to a liberal icon. There's the period where he's running campaigns for his brother including John Kennedy's run for the White House and then he gets in as the Attorney General, which a lot of people lambasted. It was the you say in the book it was the first move that John Kennedy did, that was considered to be inept.
2: Why so? So why it was considered to be inept and why he named them, let's talk about both of those. He named him partly because Joe Kennedy, President Kennedy's father, told him that Bobby had earned that. He had helped make him president. He had shown just how qualified he was and how he would always have Jack's back in a way that you could never trust other cabinet members to do. So Joe Kennedy wanted him there. Jack understood his father's reasoning, and he understood just how important Bobby had been in putting him in the White House. And so even though Bobby Kennedy had never tried a case in a court of law, he became the chief law enforcement officer of America. And I think that it was a brazen move. It was a more senior position for a presidential sibling than it had ever happened in the history of America, And yet, ironically, it turned out to be the smartest move that Jack had ever made. Bobby started out as maybe the least qualified person that had ever been named attorney general to hold that office. And he ended up, I would argue, as the best attorney general in modern American history and maybe in all of American history.
1: Even better than our current Attorney General?
2: Uh, Now, that's very difficult to imagine, that somebody could be better than Jeff Sessions. (laughs) But uh, Jeff Sessions every day goes to work in the Robert F. Kennedy Department of Justice building, and I hope that at some point maybe a little bit of that sense of what Bobby Kennedy stood for will rub off on Jeff Sessions.
1: Now, of course, it was completely open to charges of nepotism. We've got those accusations going right now because Donald Trump has appointed both Jared and Ivanka at these high positions. I mean, talk about your ultimate insiders. In some sense, I think that Donald Trump is depending on Ivanka and maybe Jared as uh, the kind of advisors that Bobby was to his brother JFK. Is there a sense in which it's equally valid, less valid? Is the fact that Kennedy did it back in 1960, 61, that it was established that you could assign your relatives into these kind of seats? Is that justification and proof that it can work well?
2: So in some ways, it's just the opposite. While on the one hand, Bobby showed how well it could work, Congress was worried enough about the implications of it that in 1967, The House and Senate passed, and President Lyndon Johnson signed an anti-nepotism law, which was known by everybody on Capitol Hill as the Bobby Kennedy Law. And they were afraid that this was a bad thing, so they set limits on it. And those are about the only limits on what Kushner and the Trump daughter can do today is this anti-nepotism law. But they've tried to circumvent that by having them not hold official positions but be more informal advisors and be unpaid advisors. But I think it's a real worry. On the other hand, I think that we shouldn't forget all the extraordinary things that Bobby Kennedy did. And if Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner can live up the Bobby Kennedy standard of incredible public service and doing huge things for America on issues ranging from battling for civil rights to fighting organized crime, if they can meet that kind of a standard, then more power to them and the president for having appointed them, but they sure haven't shown that they can do it yet.
1: Well, I read that Ivanka was opposed to the U.S. withdrawing from the climate change agreement that Donald Trump went ahead and did, so evidently he's ignoring his senior advisor of a daughter. Did John F. Kennedy ignore the advice of his younger brother Bobby very often?
2: Almost never. He took his advice on proposing a strong civil rights bill shortly before he died, when all of his other advisors were saying, wait until you're re-elected in 1964 to do it, Bobby said, do it now, Jack did it now. During critical things like the Cuban Missile Crisis, Bobby, who started out in the first six or seven days of those amazing 13 days in October of 1962, Bobby was actually a hawk but he came around to understanding the importance of a blockade and he helped bring the rest of the cabinet around to support the idea of the middle ground of a naval blockade rather than an air attack against the island of Cuba. On issue after issue, Bobby turned out to be his brother's smartest advisor and on issue after issue, Jack took Bobby's advice. Having said that, Bobby also understood instinctively what Jack's best instincts were, and he knew what buttons to push with his brother. And I worry, I I had some naive hope that having his daughter and his son-in-law support our staying in the Paris Climate Accord, I had some naive hope until the last minute, until he said we're not going to do that, that they might actually sway him. And yet I worry that they seem like two of the more sane people in the White House today, and I worry that the president isn't listening to them.
1: One of the interesting things about Bobby, and you bring this out repeatedly in the book, uh, when you talk about his meeting with Jimmy Hoffa, it certainly stands out. Bobby's personality you at various times share as being very sociable, very likable, very friendly, and at other times kind of reclusive, aloof. Is he really that much Jekyll and Hyde, or is that situational? What, Where does that come from?
2: He was shy. He was reticent. It was his wife, Ethel, who was the wonderful outgoing one, and Bobby, who was much quieter. And yet when people got to know him, he was a tough guy not to like once you really got beyond that rough and ruthless image of him on the exterior. So it was partly that there were two sides of Bobby, it was partly that over time he became more affable and more tender and more empathetic. And it was, in a way, his wife and his family that ended up becoming 11 kids that helped him of loosen up. I mean, he was a relatively uptight guy and had none of his brother's natural charm. But I found his passion and his honesty that I would have, I think, liked him a whole lot better than I I would have liked Jack Kennedy.
1: Well, considering how much Jack Kennedy is revered, that's a major statement. I mean, there was some sense from my point of view that John Kennedy went from being staunch conservative to being more moderate, I guess, by the time he was assassinated. And there's, of course, the conspiracy theories that he was assassinated because he wasn't communist-hating enough or he didn't you know, go to nuclear war or whatever. I mean, there's various allegations of what might have led to that death. You also mentioned that Bobby Kennedy ended up having a family that became 11 kids, which I consider small since I grew up in a family, you know, a Catholic family of 12 kids. When you say becoming 11 kids, would you explain what you mean by that?
2: Sure. I mean, because sadly, Bobby never lived to see his 11th child. Ethel was pregnant with that child, Rory Kennedy, a very talented filmmaker, documentary filmmaker today. But it also, there's a, a certain tragedy with that, as there's so many tragedies for the Kennedy family. When Bobby was shot... It was the night of his victory in the California presidential primary, and he had just finished his victory speech. His last words were, On to Chicago, which is where the convention was going to be held that year. He comes off of the platform, goes through the kitchen in the Ambassador Hotel, and that's where he's gunned down by Sirhan Sirhan. The link between his kids and his assassination was... That Bobby's one real bodyguard, the guy who carried a gun and who was an ex FBI agent named Bill Barry, Bill Barry was by Bobby's side throughout that campaign except that night in the kitchen. And the reason he wasn't in the kitchen is that he had stayed behind on the stage to help pregnant Ethel Kennedy get off the stage. He had stayed at Bobby's direction, who told him to stay and help Ethel. And had he been by Bobby's side, could he have done anything to prevent the assassination? We will never know that. But Bill Barry can't talk about that 50 years later because he feels so guilty about Bobby being gunned down without him being there to at least make an effort to protect him.
1: Wow, what a conundrum to be caught in. I mean, gallantry versus you have to do your job and protect a man. And I think that we get torn by those kind of both good values in that case. You know, you've described here that Bobby Kennedy was, at least in Larry Ty's estimation, Ruthless, And by the way, folks, Larry Tai, as he's writing this book, paints such vivid word pictures. It's history that you can just eat deeply from. It's a buffet of history. The sources are impeccable, and they're wide-ranging, and they're vivid. So when you say, Larry that he was ruthless or conceived of as ruthless. And, you know, you talk about his face-offs serving on the House on American Activities with Joe McCarthy. You talk about his face-offs with Roy Cohn. You talk about his face-offs with Jimmy Hoffa all of those situations, he's ruthless, he's tenacious, he does not give up, he's going for blood. Did he lose ruthlessness as he went in, or was it just made
2: more palatable to be elected? So the answer is he did become more tender and less tough over time, and if there was one moment that was his epiphany moment, it was in November of 1963 when his brother was gunned down Bobby Kennedy, in one instant, lost his best friend, his boss, and his whole sense of professional and personal direction. In the months that followed, he went through what Ethel, 50 years later, calls a deep clinical depression. At the suggestion of his sister-in-law, Jackie, he started reading Greek tragedies, and he saw in the story of, of the ancient Greeks the story of a family with great hubris that suddenly lost it all, and he started seeing his own Kennedy family story played out. And I think that if you were going to come out of that kind of thing, you couldn't help but come out a more empathetic person. And Bobby, this was a driving force in his transformation from the early, tough, cold warrior version of who Bobby Kennedy was to this extraordinary liberal icon that he was at the end. And while that happened slowly... It was fueled, more than anything, by the loss of the Kennedy family. He had lost one brother to an assassin, another brother to a plane crash in World War II, and a sister, Kathleen, to another plane crash. And that sense of loss, his father had had a disabling stroke, and everybody who mattered in his life seemed to go away or be diminished. And it was really a process that you could either come out a cynic or come out an empathetic character. And thankfully for us, he came out the latter.
1: One of the other episodes, I think, that led to a a tendering of his heart, a transformation of him, was about hunger in America, which, you know, as the most prosperous world leader that we were already in the 1960s, People had a hard time believing that there was a real problem with hunger in the U.S. Could you talk about Bobby Kennedy's experience and how that transformed him?
2: Sure. So, his really transformative moment on hunger was when he was a U.S. Senator in 1966. His committee that he was sitting on had heard about hunger in America from people coming in and testifying from places like Mississippi. And the committee was so taken with the testimony of a young African-American lawyer named Marion Wright, who became the founder of the Children's Defense Fund. Marion Wright Edelman is her name now. They were so taken with her testimony in Washington that they decided to hold a hearing in Jackson, Mississippi. And a bunch of senators go down to Jackson and hear again this testimony that there is hunger. And most of the senators hear the testimony and then take their plane back to Washington, Bobby Kennedy and one other senator named Joe Clark decided that they were so amazed by what they had heard about hunger that they were going to just go see it for themselves. And Marion Wright and Bobby's young staffer named Peter Edelman take them on a trip to the Mississippi Delta, to one of the great breadbaskets of America. And Bobby goes into one shack after another, and he sees firsthand the kind of hunger they never thought existed. And at one point, he got down on the floor with a toddler who was clearly had a distended stomach that suggested starvation. And he spent 10 or 15 minutes down on the floor with this toddler in a shack with a dirt floor with flies overhead trying to make contact with this young child in a way that touched him, that helped him become an extraordinary advocate for anti-poverty programs and that made him, when he left Mississippi and went back to Washington, he gave his kids a speech that Sunday afternoon that they can recite verbatim 50 years later about them having a responsibility, being given all that they were given growing up as Kennedys, to give back, and to give back especially on the issues of poverty and hunger in America. Again, Bobby learned by personal experience, by getting down on the floor with a starving child to learn about starving children.
1: It's an amazing transition that Bobby Kennedy went through to become this liberal icon. Again, starting from not very progressive views, I'm wondering if the transformation was across the board. I mean, he no longer became a fervent anti-communist, His views on the military, did they soften or change, or was he still, you know, a good Irishman loves a good fight, you know? How about his homophobia? Any issues about that? Maybe racism. I'm not quite sure that was ever a big issue in the Kennedy family, but I could be wrong about that. How much did he transform
2: across the board? It was across the board. On civil rights, he started out as attorney general, not being racist, but being clueless and he ended up becoming the most effective advocate we've ever had in that office for civil rights issues. On the issue of his attitude about the military and about war, he started out as being a strong advocate with his brother of our involvement in Vietnam, and then six years later, in 1966, he stands up on the floor of the Senate and says something that very few senators ever say, which is, mea culpa, I was wrong. We've got to get out of this war that I helped, along with my brother, get us into. On homophobia, he never lived long enough for it to change, but his young staffers at that time are convinced that the same way he transformed on issues like civil rights and anti-poverty and the war, that he would have come around on issues of gay rights as well. He was generally so ahead of his time and ahead of even progressive Democrats on most issues, that you give us another issue and the chance of predicting that he would have gotten out ahead of the curve on that one, there's a pretty good chance that it was true. He was just, he was there on so many things that without idealizing him, he was the inspiration for Barack Obama, for Hillary Clinton, for just about every progressive Democrat of our era. He was, and not his brother Jack, their role model and mentor.
1: So one more question. Again, he started out in the service of Joe McCarthy, Republican, anti-communist, witch hunter, as you've described it. Joe McCarthy died in 1957. I'm afraid that he died without any sense of him being repentant of the mistakes that he made or the evil that he did or however one might want to describe that. Is it possible that someone like Joe McCarthy could have gone through the same transformation? And I'm thinking not just, of course, Joe McCarthy. I'm thinking of Donald Trump or George W. Bush or anybody. That kind of transformation does not seem typical in our world. Could Joe McCarthy have gone through the transformation if he'd lived into the 60s alongside his friend Bobby Kennedy?
2: That's a great question, and the question is one of redemption. And I think Bobby Kennedy gives us hope the transformation that he went through, that in an era where we're very cynical about our politics, it gives us hope that a politician can truly change and not just flip-flop, and that they can redeem themselves. And I think an interesting question about Joe McCarthy is, if Joe McCarthy, instead of making his senior aide the arguably evil young Roy Cohn, if he had instead made Bobby Kennedy the head of his office, Would Bobby have taken him in a different and more redeeming direction? And I think there's a decent chance that he might have. I think that anybody, if Joe McCarthy had lived long enough, would he have changed and would he have understood some of the evils of his ways? Maybe. At the time of his death, he sure didn't show it. He was as unabashed witch hunter in terms of communists as he had been at the beginning, but I love to believe that Bobby Kennedy gives us faith that politicians can redeem themselves. And given that Donald Trump is likely to be our president for another three years, one can at least hold out that hope. He'll have to show whether he can do it, and there's no reason so far to think that he's going to turn around on many things. But it can happen, and Bobby shows us that it can happen in a really affirming way.
1: Well, it is quite a story of hope again. The story is captured in the book by Larry Ty Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a liberal icon it 's a New York Times bestseller folks. You better fight for your copy. I've got one here if you want to drop by and pick it up. Thank you so much, Larry, for doing this work. I do really think that history is absolutely essential. And to see how people in the past were able to be transformed to themselves and to engage in bridge building, which we need so badly now, is really of the moment for us in the United States. So thank you for bringing out Bobby's story. Good luck on your next work. And again, you said that's going to be on Joe McCarthy himself. Thank you so much for
2: joining me for Spirit in Action. So it was a blast, and I appreciate your having me on.
1: There are a few choice bonus excerpts from this interview with Larry that we just couldn't squeeze into this broadcast, but you can hear them on northernspiritradio.org. Again, Larry Ty's website is larrytye.com. Tye is T-Y-E. My appreciation goes out to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's show Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action.